This is a strong content warning. All parts of this extended multi-part episode contain strong language, descriptions of violent murders, and worse. Teachers, guardians, parents, and caregivers should listen to every part of this episode first, and then make their own judgment call about whether this content is suitable for younger or more sensitive audiences. Case S01, E11, The Yorkshire Ripper, Part 5 of 5. On Wednesday the 29th of April, 1981, standing before Judge Mr Justice Borum at the Old Bailey in London, Sutcliffe pleads, Not guilty to murder, but guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. The Attorney General, Sir Michael Havers QC, prosecuting, is willing to accept this plea, but after consideration, the judge determines that the case must go to a full trial by jury. Throughout the trial, Sutcliffe's defence counsel, James Chadwin QC, argues that Sutcliffe is suffering from paranoid schizophrenia, an argument that has the support of four psychiatric experts. Today, Dr Hugo Milne, the first of three psychiatrists who will be giving evidence, has been in the witness box all day, explaining why he's convinced that Peter Sutcliffe is mad. He read out a list of 19 signs and symptoms, which he said gave him his final diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. Sutcliffe had described his feelings about the killings. After the death of Vera Millward, he said, the feeling, which lay dormant for a while, later welled up so strongly that I could have killed any woman. Dr Milne said that the fact that Sutcliffe couldn't distinguish eventually from respectable girls and prostitutes simply showed that he was getting madder as time went along. His total calm with the police and in the witness box, despite his terrible crimes, was yet more evidence of his schizophrenia. Sonia Sutcliffe was in court today for the first time this week. Her husband didn't look at her as defence counsel James Chadwin asked if Sutcliffe could have learned to fake his mental illness from her because she'd once suffered from schizophrenia. That's highly unlikely, said Dr Milne. Mrs Sutcliffe stayed just for the morning, again hurrying to a waiting taxi with her coat collar pulled up around her face. Then came the following exchange. Mr James Chadwin for the defence said, Did you ever suggest to Sutcliffe that he might only do ten years in custody to satisfy the public? Certainly not, said Dr Milne. Do you regard him as dangerous, Dr Milne? Not dangerous, extremely dangerous. Ken Reese, News at 10, at the Old Bailey. In the end, on the 22nd of May 1981, Sutcliffe is found guilty and given 20 concurrent life sentences. In the chaos of Sutcliffe's arrest in January, and again four months later at his trial throughout May, few people can be persuaded to retain any lasting interest in the letters and tape. It is important to remember that The Yorkshire Ripper and Wearside Jack have dominated the headlines for six long years now. For many people, the topic has gone on so long, they have become numb to the horror and then even become sick of the subject. The nation, and especially Yorkshire, has been saturated with news, often daily, if not hourly, for more than half a decade. This has been news that has actively affected the daily patterns of life of countless women, Throughout the Yorkshire Ripper's reign of terror, sexual harassment and assault increased. 
Women walking alone found themselves being taunted and reprimanded and jeered at in the street. At one stage, some officers even began urging women to stay indoors after dark, to only go out with chaperones, to stay out of red light districts, to dress modestly, to stay out of pubs and more. Rightly outraged by being made responsible for the killer's actions, women protested and marched and made their displeasure known. After all, given that the criminal was a male, it would have made more sense to have all men follow a curfew and stay indoors beyond certain times, for all men to have chaperones, to stay out of red light districts, and so forth. The police, too, are suffering from institutional exhaustion and heavily depleted resources. George Oldfield is not the only officer broken by the Ripper inquiry. The past six years of policing in West Yorkshire has been largely thankless and, for some, downright brutal. The Wearside Jack letters and tapes may have derailed the investigation at a cost of millions of pounds to the taxpayer, and three further murders might have occurred since they were sent, but the killer is now in custody, on trial, in prison. Few people in the police, the public, or the media can muster up the enthusiasm for yet another investigation to find some random troubled individual who sent some hoax letters. And if a killer is so difficult to find with unlimited resources thrown at the problem for years, with the hellfire of a furious prime minister threatening to blaze a trail to Leeds to take over and get the job done herself, then what on earth chance is there of catching some petty hoaxer with only a fraction of the resources, motivation and evidence? If few cared about finding Wearside Jack, though, then even fewer cared that the linguists had been vindicated in their claims that the communications were frauds. Ellis describes the moment he heard the news of Sutcliffe's arrest as follows. The next morning, I rang a police contact and asked about the man who had been arrested. He doesn't have a Geordie accent, I was told. I couldn't resist saying, I told you he hadn't. Welcome to Enclair, an archive of forensic linguistics, literary detection and language mysteries. You can find case notes about this episode, including credits, acknowledgements and links to further reading at the blog. The web address is given at the end of this episode. And if you get a moment, leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts from. The linguists are still in disgrace. Not quite enough to make them entirely indispensable when their opinions might prove useful, but, as I've mentioned, enough for none other than the Chief Constable Ronald Gregory himself to make a public statement of his displeasure in 1983, as Ellis's account so eloquently observes. A unit in charge of attempting to identify the hoaxer was kept on for several years, and as late as 1984 I was brought a videotape made in Ireland of a voice the police believed might be him. Large numbers of people not normally connected with the police affairs became involved in the Ripper inquiries. The total sum of money spent was enormous. Many saw it as a public duty to do what they could to help, as I did myself. When letters were sent after the trial to people who had acted in various ways, it seemed an unhappy oversight that nothing came to me or to Jack Windsor Lewis. A year or so later, when yet another recording was brought to me for comparison, I let it be known that I felt rather affronted by this omission, and a brief note from the Assistant Chief Constable, Mr Hobson, arrived. Windsor Lewis received no acknowledgement of his efforts. 
Ronald Gregory wrote a Sunday newspaper article about the Ripper case after he retired, stating that the linguistics advisers had let the police down. The remark left me furious. Windsor Lewis urged that we should write a letter to the Times. There are moments when I regret that I persuaded him that a dignified silence was the best response. For this three-part series in the Mail on Sunday, grimly entitled The Ripper Files, Gregory faces an intense backlash from fellow officers, the public and the press association. Gregory is said to have been paid £40,000 for it. That's around £130,000 in today's money. And the public is quick to notice that this seems grotesquely like blood money derived from a series of horrific attacks and murders. As if this isn't bad enough, the articles are also described as unilluminating and repetitive, giving no new or special insight into the case, despite Gregory's primary position of overall command. In the extracts from his memoirs, Mr Gregory points out many flaws in the police investigation and admits to the biggest mistake of all in the six-year hunt for Peter Sutcliffe, releasing the hoax tape of a Geordie which led police in the wrong direction. A victim of Peter Sutcliffe, Olive Smelt, who survived an attack in 1975, is suing the Mail on Sunday for describing her as a prostitute. Her husband, Harry, says they and the families of other victims are disgusted that Mr Gregory and the newspaper should make money by cashing in on a failed investigation. I don't think it's right that a newspaper should entertain uh, an article from Gregory. He's been a disaster. It's like going to somebody else and saying, we're prepared to pay you £40,000 for telling us how you sent that firm into bankruptcy and how you failed. West Yorkshire Labour MP Tom Tawney is calling on the new Home Secretary Leon Britton to stop any further publications, and he says he's worried about the information being made public at all. I deplore it completely and absolutely. I deplore all forms of checkbook journalism, whatever it may be, particularly when we take into account that the report uh, that was organised by the Home Secretary, the Byford report, which was critical of the West Yorkshire Police, was never made public. And now uh, he's been paid, or allegedly paid, uh, to make public uh, possibly many things that were in the Byford report. The mother of the final victim, Jacqueline Hill, is threatening to sue West Yorkshire Police for negligence. The Home Office is writing to the Hill family to express their distaste at the disclosures. But the chairman of the Police Federation, Leslie Curtis, says he won't censure the former Chief Constable. We take the attitude, particularly with the Police Federation, that there's no reason that the public shouldn't know anything. Um, if it's in the interest of national security or in, in, in the interest of, of, of the private um, lives of individuals, then yes. Um, but let's face it, this particular inquiry was <laughs> public property almost from the word go. Mr Gregory himself has been keeping a low profile, but has said he thinks it's a story that should be told and that the public should know about, a view backed up by Mail on Sunday editor Stuart Stevens. I thought that story was worth reporting, I thought indeed it was essential that story should be worth reporting. To get that story, I, I, I had to pay for it. 
but some MPs are concerned that Mr Gregory is abusing his position as a senior public servant. The Yorkshire Euro MP Dr Barry Seal has tabled a question calling for a new law to stop former public employees profiting from the information they gain from their jobs. And Labour MP Tom Tawney says that's the biggest insult. He is a public official and he was paid at the time by the taxpayer to do his public duty. And now he's receiving cash out of the murder of many innocent young women. And God knows their, their relatives still alive here must feel pretty dreadful about the whole thing. The Mail on Sunday insists that Ronald Gregory's account is an important public statement and that the revelations will force the Home Office to introduce more modern methods into police detection. But let's return to Alice and his final thought on Wearside Jack. To this day, in spite of various reports, the identity of a man who sent a tape and letters claiming to be Jack the Murderer has never been discovered. Ellis wrote this back in 1994, some 25 years ago now, and at first, this sentiment, that the real Wearside Jack has never been caught, holds true. The years pass after Sutcliffe's trial, first two, then five, then ten, and it starts to look as though the mystery will never be solved. Though the linguists have been proven right in their fears that the communications were hoaxes, the victory is otherwise an empty one. Without a substantive Wearside Jack to pin the communications on, their job is only half complete. Were they correct in their analyses? Did they deduce the right sociolinguistic information from the tape and letters? Finally, In 2003, there are rumours in the press that the police have called off the search. Too much time has passed. The evidence is now utterly compromised by prior testing, and some of it is entirely lost and destroyed. It is 25 years after Sutcliffe's arrest, and two years after the police are said to have closed the case, when Wearside Jack unexpectedly returns to the headlines, and linguists, too, find themselves again in the spotlight. But before we can go forward, we must once more go back. We return to 1974. But now we turn our attention to Sunderland, Kale Road Library. An 18-year-old bricklaying apprentice enters the building and makes his way to the crime section. His name is John Samuel Humble. Humble hates the police. The year before, at 17, he was convicted of burglary and theft. Unbeknownst to him now, next year at the age of 19, he will kick an off-duty police officer in the head and, as a consequence, spend three months at a young offenders institute. Humble hates the police and he loves the idea of notoriety. Infamy. In the library, things are peaceful. Humble scans over the limited selection of titles on crime that this small community library has to offer. Finally, he takes hold of a green-covered hardback book entitled Jack the Ripper. Humble checks the book out and takes it home. He will keep it for over a year, copying out the letters supposedly sent to newspapers and the police by that most infamous Victorian Whitechapel murderer, Jack the Ripper. Two years later, the Yorkshire Ripper murders start to dominate the news cycle, appearing in every paper's headlines and on every breaking news broadcast. 
Now aged 20, Humble begins to amass an almost encyclopedic knowledge of the events. Dates, names, locations, injuries, officers, and more. Obsessed with it, consuming everything he can read about it, at some point, Humble has an idea. It's both entertaining and satisfying. Why not take this opportunity to insult the police, to even get a little bit of that notoriety for himself? Using the Jack the Ripper letters as templates, Humble writes two of his own and sends them to George Oldfield and to the editor of the Daily Mirror. But the attempt is a disappointment. Nothing comes of it. No reports, not even a passing mention. A year passes by. He sends another letter to George Oldfield, but again, still, nothing. At least not to the outside world. He is unaware that behind the scenes, the third letter is being taken more seriously. Perhaps emboldened by the idea that nothing will come of any of this anyway and that it will just annoy the police, or perhaps craving that infamy that he aspires to even more, Humble borrows his brother's tape recorder and sitting in his messy kitchen with custard powder on the table, he records a message. This, too, he posts to the police. All at once, the entire machinery of the enormous, sprawling Ripper investigation pivots. It turns and it fixes its laser focus onto his tiny part of the world. Within days, multiple police forces and thousands of broadcasters and newspapers are in a feverish race to find Wearside Jack. Him. And the giveaway clue for this person's identity happens every time he opens his mouth. The million-pound media campaign makes it almost impossible for Humble to pass a radio or television or newspaper stand without seeing or hearing some mention of his letters and tape. And what has just been a bit of fun has now mutated into a gigantic, frightening monster. Then, the unthinkable happens. Another murder. Increasingly panicked, at around 5pm on the 14th of September 1979, Humble calls the Sunderland police station to tell them that the letters and tape are a hoax. He refuses to give his name or address, and then hangs up. You can hear the transcript of the part of the conversation that the officer managed to record earlier in this miniseries. Ironically, having determined that his hoax communications are real, the police now choose this moment to decide that his real communication is a hoax. Incredibly, throughout this time, despite the marked uniqueness of his voice, none of Humble's relatives or friends seem to suspect him, or if they do, they make no mention of it. The key factor behind this seems to be that the police continue to frame the letters and tapes as real, and they also describe the killer as someone who likely drives for a living. Humble cannot drive and has no licence or car. Just as Humble's handwriting ends up being used to eliminate Sutcliffe as the Yorkshire Ripper, so too are Sutcliffe's inferred characteristics, his ability to drive, probably used by those around Humble to eliminate him as Wearside Jack. Despite this, the danger of being found out is still very real, and a little over a year later, Humble finds himself unexpectedly facing the double-edged assistance and danger of Windsor Lewis's article in the Yorkshire Post in December of 1980. 
On the one hand, Windsor Lewis describing the tapes and letters as red herrings may help to dislodge them from the centre of the investigation and take the intense focus off of them. But on the other, it may make people around Humble realise that if the letters and tapes are indeed a hoax, then the hoaxer could very well be him. It will take another month and the arrest of Sutcliffe in January of 1981 before the danger seems to truly pass. With time, Wearside Jack sinks into the shadowy depths of history and an angry, young, 20-year-old humble slides into alcoholism. His drinking, combined with his continued dislike of the police, has an almost inevitable outcome, though it takes two decades to arrive. On the 10th of September, 2001, an almost 40-year-old humble is having yet another run-in with the police and he ends up being cautioned for drunk and disorderly behaviour. During that interaction with the police, he gives a DNA sample, but this, too, almost certainly fades from Humble's memory as the years continue to pass by. A full quarter of a century after Sutcliffe's arrest, in 2005, the West Yorkshire Police decide to undertake a cold case review of the Wearside Jack hoax. The announcement prompts a small flurry of renewed media interest which in turn leads to the police locating some of the seal from one of the envelopes that has been in storage in a forensic lab. On the 19th of October 2005, the DNA in the saliva on the envelope seal is tested, and to the astonishment of all involved, it promptly comes up with a match in the UK's national DNA database. The owner of that DNA? John Samuel Humble. On the same day as the DNA test result, the 19th of October 2005, Humble is arrested and brought to West Yorkshire, where he is interviewed at Wood Street Police Station in the city of Wakefield. But there is a problem. Just because Humble licked the envelopes, that doesn't actually prove very much. It certainly doesn't prove that he wrote the letters, or that it is his voice on the tapes. After all, he could have simply sealed the packages for someone else, unaware of what they contained. Even a similarity of accent isn't conclusive. He does come from that very area, and he is not the only man of his age with that voice. And initially, at least, Humble denies everything. The next step, then, is to get the linguists back in to compare Humble's voice to Wearside Jack's, to see if they really do match. However, Will this investigative cooperation between the police and the linguists go any better than the last one? That same day, on the 19th of October, at around 5pm, West Yorkshire Police contact J.P. French Associates, the speech and acoustics laboratory that specialises in the analysis of evidential recordings that we mentioned earlier, the one that happened to have the recording of Humble calling the police and telling them that the letters and tape were a hoax. One can only speculate why the police didn't contact Ellis or Windsor Lewis at this time. Both were, to be fair, 79 years old, and that may have been the overriding objection. But there may have been other considerations, including awkward feelings about unpleasant newspaper articles. This becomes an especially important consideration when we note that Windsor Lewis later does become involved in this case anyway. Whatever the reason behind this, the police urgently request Professor Peter French and Dr Philip Harrison to undertake an analysis of the Wearside Jack hoax tape, and they provide various recorded police interviews with John Humble for comparison purposes. The very next day, on the 20th of October 2005, 
French and Harrison begin a preliminary analysis and indicate to the police that there are several important points of similarity between the recordings of Wearside Jack and Humble. However, the Wearside Jack recording that they are working with is a poor quality recording of a recording. It's not the original tape. A few hours later, French and Harrison are contacted by the police again. Humble has confessed. News of Wearside Jack's arrest breaks and seeing the headlines, a retired Home Office scientist comes forward with the original cassette tape. Able now to undertake a better analysis, French and Harrison conduct auditory and acoustic phonetic analyses. These include looking at voice quality, rhythm intonation, suprasegmental features, computer-based frequency averaging, spectrography and vowel formant analysis. Because once it got Humble, they had him read aloud from a transcript of the original I'm Jack message. We were contacted by them and the question was, will you be able to compare the voices? Well, when I was initially asked that, my heart was in my boots. I thought, well, for the first thing, 26 years have gone by and of course there are changes to the voice over that period of time. Secondly, the man was a chronic alcoholic and thirdly, he was a heavy smoker. And those two factors alone, with the passage of time, would, one suspect, do substantial damage to the vocal cords. Here is a short segment of the sample obtained by French and Harrison in October of 2005, followed by a short segment of the original recording from June 1979, some 26 years earlier. I'm Jack. I say you are still having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George, but Lord, you are no near catching me now than four years ago when I started. I'm Jack. I see you are still having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George, but Lord, you are no near catching me now four years ago when I started. In fact, when we got the recordings, they were strikingly similar. It was almost as though they were contemporaneous, same man in a different room on the same day. As the case proceeds towards court, in one of those peculiar twists of fate that sometimes accompany these already unusual scenarios, whilst French and Harrison are retained by the prosecution, the defence decides to hire Jack Windsor-Lewis as their expert witness. Those outside of the English legal system might feel especially dubious about this, but it's worth explaining this a little bit. The duty of an expert in the English criminal courtroom is to the court itself, not to the legal team retaining them. One should undertake as rigorous and neutral and objective an investigation as possible and then present the results no matter how much they help or destroy the arguments of the counsel by whom that person has been retained. On the 1st of February 2006, Windsor Lewis goes to Armley Prison in Leeds where Humble is being held. In what he describes as very trying circumstances, at Windsor Lewis's request, Humble writes out all three letters again and re-records the hoax tape. Windsor Lewis goes on to state that... My overall impression from intensive examination of the Armley versions of the letters and the recordings was that there was no cogent evidence that could be adduced to claim that the accused had not been responsible for the actions with which he was charged. 
and at the conclusion of their investigation, French and Harrison, working for the prosecution, summarised thus. We were informed just before the trial began that none of our findings on speaker identity or recording method slash circumstances was to be subject to challenge by the defence. In different and arguably overly simplified terms, when it comes to their expert evidence for the trial of Wearside Jack, all three linguists find themselves at least in general agreement that Humble does indeed appear to be Wearside Jack. Six weeks later, on the 20th of March 2006, at Leeds Crown Court on the first day of trial, Humble confesses his responsibility for the three letters and the hoax tape. The following day, pleas of extenuation are made on his behalf based on his confession and on his history of mental illness, his suicidal tendencies and his alcoholism. In the end, Humble is given an eight-year custodial sentence on four charges of perverting the course of justice, one for each of the communications. But whilst Wearside Jack has been caught and jailed at last, a crucial question remains unanswered. You might remember from earlier in this miniseries that Stanley Ellis undertook an extensive analysis of Wearside Jack's, that is, John Humble's, accent. Ellis concluded that the origins of the voice were close to the small villages of either Castletown or Southwick, each on the south bank of the River Weir, only two miles apart. So was Ellis correct? At the time that he posted the letters and tape, Humble's address was 15 Holstead Square in the Ford Estate in Sunderland. If you were to walk due south from this address for just one mile, you would find yourself standing at the edge of the River Weir. On the opposite side, the North Bank, a mile to the left, you would see Castletown, and a mile to the right, you would see Southwick. Ellis had located Humble's voice to within just two miles of his actual address. It would seem sensible to end this case here, but there is just one more tiny, mildly interesting twist. On the 3rd of April 2006, not quite a fortnight after Humble has been sentenced, a number of newspapers, including The Mirror, breathlessly report that the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, has written two letters, or more accurately two notes, to Wearside Jack, that is, John Humble. I've scoured the various articles and tried fairly extensively to corroborate the existence of these notes in some form or another, but the origins of this story look to have been lost in the intervening decade. Worse, it's nearly impossible to organise the two notes back into their original forms. By this I mean the various papers have irreconcilably jumbled them up. Papers like to quote a little and then interject with some observation or other and then paraphrase a bit and so forth. So the best that I've been able to manage is to simply put all the various elements together into one long paragraph that should, presumably, be split into somewhere in the middle. Anyway, what do these notes from Sutcliffe to Humble supposedly say? Well, the two taken together run as follows. I have just heard that you got eight years in prison on Tuesday for the crimes you committed. I am not surprised that you got that length of time because what you did was very bad indeed. You have now had your 15 minutes of fame and you have reopened old wounds again and put me back in the media spotlight. I do not need this now or ever again. The same thing will happen when you are released. You could have saved those three women, John. You have blood on your hands. I was under the influence of voices. What was your excuse, John? Drink and drugs, I hear. 
You have some sort of fascination with my case. Maybe you are responsible for the other bodies which only a few other people know about. Did you kill them others, John? I must know. I want you to write back, John, so we may exchange letters and maybe organise a visit here at Broadmoor. We have loads to talk about. I want you to say sorry for your crimes and interfering in the investigation into my crimes. I am cured of my evil thoughts and you can be cleansed as well. Treatment and drugs will help you, John. I know. I hope you get some treatment for your problems, John, because you are very ill indeed. You could even end up in Broadmoor with me. That is where you belong. It would be very strange that, the two of us sharing history in the same place. Be strong. God will look after you. Your friend, Peter. So I have to come clean here and say that, honestly, I am very sceptical. Is it impossible that Sutcliffe wrote these notes to Humble? Well, no, of course, not at all. He could have written anything. But I do have to wonder what the prison system policy is on inmates contacting each other like this. However, it all comes across rather bizarrely. I mean, let's take the bit about, maybe you are responsible for the other bodies which only a few other people know about. Did you kill them others, John? I mean, this is confusing on several counts, and I can only find two ways to understand this, neither of which is satisfactory. Interpretation number one. Sutcliffe is talking about Humble's supposed murder victims? But if that's the case, how could Sutcliffe possibly know about them? I mean, Sutcliffe and Humble didn't know each other before this whole thing, so is he a mind reader? Or is the implication that Humble and Sutcliffe knew each other whilst the murders were going on? Also, who are these few other people who also supposedly know about these bodies? Or interpretation number two, Sutcliffe is talking about his own murder victims, ones which haven't yet been discovered. But if this is the case, given his unwillingness to admit to murders in interviews, even in the face of strong evidence, would he really commit such an open confession to paper and then send it right through the prison system under the eyes of countless guards? It doesn't really matter how I try to pass this, it's just confusing and very weird. And then there's the other thing that really jars for me in this supposed Sutcliffe letter or these two notes. I'll give you six example sentences and maybe you can spot what I'm noticing. You could have saved those three women, John. What was your excuse, John? Did you kill their mothers, John? I want you to write back, John. Treatment and drugs will help you, John. I hope you get some treatment for your problems, John. Yeah, if you haven't realised what's going on there, then I'm not sure how to help you with that. Why is this noteworthy? Why am I picking this out? Beyond the fact that it sounds especially weird when you read these sentences back to back like this, well, I'm going to quote you something else in the same way and see if you can see the issue. I have the greatest respect for you, George. I reckon your boys are letting you down, George. They never learn, do they, George? Well, it's been nice chatting to you, George. That, of course, is Humble from the 1979 tape that he sent to George Oldfield, the Assistant Chief Constable of West Yorkshire Police, who was in charge of the Ripper investigation. And, as you may remember, in that tape, Humble was pretending to be Peter Sutcliffe. And there's one more thing. In the prison note, supposedly from Sutcliffe, there is the question, Did you kill them others, John? Notice that dialectal feature, them others. You will be shocked to know that Humble uses this selfsame feature too. In his March 1978 letters, one to the police, the other to the Daily Mirror, Humble writes, My purpose? To rid the streets of them sluts. 
I am telling you, to warn them whores I'll strike again. Can't walk the streets for them whore. It's crucial to bear in mind, though, that this feature is pretty common across plenty of dialects, so by itself it doesn't tell us much. I just find it interesting that it comes up in these notes and in Humble's letters. Anyway, I think you've probably gathered. I have a suspicion that the Sutcliffe notes to Humble are, in fact, Humble pretending to be Sutcliffe. Again. Of course, I have nothing that amounts to proof of this. The sum total of evidence that I'm presenting here is garbled data extracted from newspapers who have made a pig's ear of presenting these alleged Sutcliffe notes. And this is assuming that they ever existed in the first place. I'm also basing this on a pre-existing suspicion that this is a hoax based on Humble's prior history of creating exactly this kind of hoax. And I've only got two extremely tentative features, this really weird intrusive first name use that comes at the end of the sentence, and this really common dialectal variant. I don't have, most importantly, a comparable set of data from Sutcliffe. Maybe he also is a creepy overuser of first names that he sticks at the ends of all of his sentences. Maybe he also uses them the same way. And when you compare these supposed notes to Humble's letters, that is, to his writing rather than his speech, he doesn't do this exaggerated first name use in his writing, it just occurs in the tape. Then again, the tape is supposedly a script that he has read out loud, and when you listen to it, it does sound very much like a read-out piece of communication rather than something that was naturally and spontaneously spoken. Anyway, in conclusion, this is interesting, and it's enough to start an investigation, but since no crime appears to have been committed, and it's almost impossible to find further details about these supposed notes, this will likely remain a minor, unresolved mystery. In one of those strange coincidences, just a fortnight before this final episode in the miniseries was due to air, there has been an unexpected update on the case of Wearside Jack, as you can probably tell this is a different bit of recording from the rest of it. And it does mean that the likelihood of solving this Sutcliffe Humble prison notes mystery has fallen yet further. As ever, to fully contextualise this turn of events, we need a little bit of background. According to news sources, Humble was released from prison in late 2009. Now, if this was true, he would have served around three years of his eight-year prison sentence. On his release, Humble changed his name to Anderson, John Samuel Anderson, and he moved into a ground floor flat in South Shields, got himself a dog that he named Jack, a rather unsettling choice, all things considered, and he even appears to have struck up a relationship However, it would also seem that this relationship ultimately failed and that Humble struggled both with alcohol and unemployment. On the 30th of July, 2019, alone in his flat, John Samuel Humble died of heart failure and chronic alcohol misuse. He was aged just 63. There are many ways to finish this miniseries, so much so that it is difficult to decide which seems to be the most fitting. Soon after Sutcliffe's arrest, two reviews of the investigation are undertaken. One leads to the Sampson Report, and the other later on to the Byford Report, which ran to almost 150 pages and remains partially redacted to this day. The government likewise released around 175 pages of interactions between Downing Street several Home Office departments and the commanding officers of numerous police forces. 
These reports and papers all reveal both the incredible scale of the investigation and the dozens of developing schisms and tensions as a lot of different organisations try to work together on a single objective. One problem, from a modern perspective, was that the police forces simply had no experience of dealing with a major high-profile incident spanning multiple jurisdictions that was, in turn, triggering ever more, ever louder, ever longer eruptions of increasingly negative publicity. Similarly, there were simply no suitable methods for handling the enormous quantities of information, and the police were very quickly buried under interviews, public responses to media appeals, records of number plates, supernatural predictions, sightings, hoaxes, guesses, tips and more besides. In the present day, should a case of this nature occur, there are multiple high- and mid-level strategies for streamlining an investigation so that all the forces are working to the same purpose and sharing the same information. In fact, as a direct result of cases like this, in 1985, the Home Office introduced the computer system Holmes, as in Sherlock Holmes, the Home Office Large Major Inquiry System, to coordinate officers and information. But in the 1970s and the early 1980s, the different forces could find themselves struggling to prioritise and share key information. The commanding officers also appear to have struggled in their relationship with experts like Ellis and Windsor Lewis, especially when it came to valuing their judgments, respecting their independence, and later, even just acknowledging their efforts. Ellis's truly exceptional analytical conclusions in placing Wearside Jack within two miles of his home might have been an unassailable vindication of the value of his expertise, but that could have felt like poor consolation for finding himself slighted by the chief constable of West Yorkshire Police in a national tabloid, and then spending the next 25 years in disgrace with at least some of the officers involved in the Ripper inquiry. There were yet more issues that hampered this case, however. Egos and politics were at play, and the commanding officers of one force could take exception to and disagree with and even refuse to implement the decisions of another force. Sometimes this was clearly because each was convinced that they were taking the best course of action, but at other times the spirit of cooperativeness seemed to be broken by the competitive desire to be proven right and to be the ones to get the ripper. The hoax letters and the tape should never have been sent, of course, but the way that they were dealt with the problematic way in which their authenticity and provenance was established, and then the unquestioning faith that was finally placed in them had desperately tragic consequences, to the extent that Sutcliffe was free to carry out at least three more murders and possibly others besides that have never been formally proven as his. There were still other issues, however, as I've mentioned throughout this miniseries. The police did not have access to fingerprinting technology of the kind that we use today. There was no DNA testing as we now think of it, the masses of computerised records that police now turn to for things like tyre tracks, for wound types, for material sources, all of these did not exist and the police work in what we would now consider to be almost complete darkness. But there was at least one more pervasive issue and this belonged to no one person or organisation in particular. It was the prevailing attitude towards sex workers and particularly women sex workers in the 1960s, 70s and 80s. Women in this line of work were seen, and as I've said, arguably still are seen, as less than human, as victims of their own making, as not worthy of much, if any sympathy, if they are attacked or murdered. In just one infamous example, 
at the trial itself, when describing the victims, the Attorney General and Prosecuting Counsel Sir Michael Havers said, Some were prostitutes, but perhaps the saddest part of the case is that some were not. The last six attacks were on totally respectable women. I mean, I can't understand how this even came out of his mouth. He is literally saying that the death of a sex worker is not as sad as that of a non-sex worker. And of course, yet again, we have that wearisomely loaded word, respectable. The extent of this attitude was so marked throughout the years of Sutcliffe's attacks that some of the women that may have been attacked by him but were not sex workers, or were not openly so, did not want to be linked to the other Yorkshire Ripper crimes for fear that they might be seen as sex workers too. Before you think unkindly of these women, consider that in this era, a conviction for prostitution, or even just the suspicion of it, could result in losing one's children, spouse, job, friends, family, home, everything. It means, even now, that the chances of being physically attacked or sexually assaulted or even murdered increase, sometimes dangerously, as that person is marked out as a potential future target by predatory people. And it meant, especially historically, that a police response to such a crime against a so-called known prostitute could be diluted, if not altogether negligent. The cases in this investigation demonstrated that difference in public response repeatedly. Whilst the victims appeared to be sex workers, the investigation garnered some media interest. But when some of the victims were described as innocent, respectable, middle class and so on, the outcry was immediate and intense, and the police stepped up their efforts markedly. In other words, for some of these women who were possible or actual surviving Yorkshire Ripper victims, avoiding the label of sex worker was not simply about avoiding potential embarrassment. It was a matter of avoiding threats to physical and social safety and potentially even extreme, life-altering consequences. As I've mentioned, this also meant that some women did not report attacks against them at first, or even for years. Others may have withheld or altered details to obscure possible links, and still others resisted having their crimes linked to the series, an option that we can imagine that the police were sometimes only too happy to choose. And this once again takes us back to the so-called official timeline of attacks. In plenty of sources on this case, the history of the Yorkshire Ripper is presented as though we now know everything that happened, who was attacked, how many victims there were, and so forth. In reality, this could not be much further from the truth. Whilst Sutcliffe is officially convicted of murdering 13 women and attempting to murder seven other women, we simply do not know for sure how many women Sutcliffe attacked and killed. Sometimes he carried out attacks within weeks or even days of each other, and at other times it would seem that he did not strike for as long as a year at a time. If we look at the attacks and murders that occurred from the mid-1960s through to 1981, that is, the period of his early adulthood through to his capture, a pattern starts to emerge towards the end of the murders of someone who is attacking around one woman per month. If this were to be extrapolated to a window of around 25 years, then at the most unlikely extreme, he may have carried out or attempted as many as 300 murders. In reality, it is more likely that with each killing he was becoming bolder, more frenzied, more addicted, and that the pattern by the end is not representative of that at the start. So, more realistically, when the range of crimes are compared alongside the methods used in the attack and the victim profiles, the times and dates and locations and accompanying evidence, 
the evidence suggests that Sutcliffe was more likely involved in somewhere around 30 to 60 murders and attempted murders that have not been added to the official list. As a result of precisely this uncertainty, in 1991, 10 years after Sutcliffe is imprisoned, Chief Constable Keith Hallowell is asked to investigate any additional murders and attacks that Sutcliffe might have committed. A list of around 60 unsolved crimes is compiled, and based on factors like driving logs, Sutcliffe is eliminated as a suspect from around 40 of these. Of the remaining 20 cases, Hallowell focuses on eight murders and two attempted murders, and he goes to Broadmoor numerous times over the next 10 years to repeatedly interview Sutcliffe. Finally, in 1992, Sutcliffe admits to some of these further crimes, but notably only to the two attempted murders. He continues to deny any involvement in the eight murders. Of those attempted murders, one is 14-year-old Tracy Brown of Silsden, the case we looked at in detail in the first episode in this miniseries. This is the victim who was literally laughed at by a police officer when she insisted that her attacker was the Yorkshire Ripper. The other victim is 22-year-old Anne Rooney from Leeds. As I've mentioned, Sutcliffe continues to deny the other eight murders, and in recent years the media have reported the police are saying that, unless significant new evidence comes to light, they will not now pursue any further murder charges against Sutcliffe. Aged 72 at the time of this recording, Sutcliffe is currently incarcerated in Her Majesty's Prison, Frankland, in County Durham, in the UK. This is the same prison that has held and holds other notorious killers, such as Harold Shipman, Ian Huntley, Michael Adebolajo, and Peter Chapman. Sutcliffe is one of around only 75 prisoners in the UK serving what is known as a whole life order. This prison sentence, which is a special exception to the usual sentences, allows no possibility of parole or any form of conditional release whatsoever. And the result of this is that Sutcliffe will spend his few remaining years of life in prison. End of part five of five. This episode of Enclair was researched and fact-checked by Rebecca Jagodzinski. And it was scripted, narrated and produced by me, Dr Claire Hardacre. However, this work wouldn't exist in its current form without the prior efforts of many others. You can find acknowledgements and references for those people at the blog. Also there you can find data, links, articles, pictures, older cases and more besides. The address for the blog is wp.lancs.ac.uk forward slash and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at underscore onclair. If you like, you can follow Rebecca on Twitter at, brace yourself, R-J-J, that's right, two J's, A-G-O-D-Z-I-N-S-K-I. And you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Claire H. <laughs>